Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. For this episode, we're very happy to have with us Richard Egger. Richard is a conductor, harpsichordist, music director of the Academy of Ancient Music, music director of the Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra, and there are a couple other things, but I don't think we need to go into too much detail, do we? I don't think so. I think just general music addict is a, is a good description. <laughs> well, that's interesting because we're, we're talking to you in your home on a dike in the Netherlands, and behind you is this huge wall of CDs. We, we've interviewed a lot of musicians lately, and none of them have had visible CDs. That kind of looks like my collection before I sold a lot of it off and, and went to streaming and, and ripped things and put them you know, in. What you're seeing is about 5% of it. Egad. Because wow. there's also a bunch of there's, there's walls of vinyl. I have Egad. I have a whole Stokowski archive downstairs of shellac from on seventy eight. Uh, so I am, I am a total music addict in, in every way, shape, or form. But not just just um, uh, playing it and doing it, but collecting it, listening to it, and 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 music scores and stuff. So I've 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 sort of really had the bug since I was since I can remember. Really, absolutely, since I can remember. So yes. What's interesting is uh, we've talked to some other musicians and they, well, I don't listen to recordings that much because they don't want to be influenced by them. Do you listen to all this music for your pleasure or is this part of your research when you're working on new pieces? Both. Uh, I mean, the, the research part is, I mean, for me, uh, I get a lot from listening to great old, certainly great old performers and, and great new performers, but mostly old being in the historical area. I'm fascinated by how performance styles and attitudes and its aesthetics have changed. And it's very important for us as when we're performing, uh, well, 17th, 18th, but particularly 19th century music, where we have lots of recordings by people from the 19th century. Um, and we can learn an awful lot of uh, stuff from just listening to what we have available on, on, on record. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, everything. It's certainly very, very useful to, to gather information about historical performance practice. And what are you listening to these days? Um, what was the last thing I listened I was just about to put on a Monteverdi recording from 1955 um, of, of August Wenzinger, one of the very early recordings of Monteverdi's Orfeo, um, which is interesting because it has a very young Gustav Leonhardt and a very young Marie Leonhardt playing in the orchestra. Um, actually, it's interesting that just just looking at that. I mean, that, that, they were just starting up the, the the two of them in having been in Vienna in, 19, in the early fifties, and they were sort of gigging with the with the latest historical people. August Wenzinger was one of the people that was around at the in the fifties. So um, that was the last thing I just put on the on the turntable. <laughs> so what's interesting is that you're talking about this sort of lineage in music performance practice and in the way it gets passed down from generation to generation. So I'm looking at your biography. You were a choir boy at York Minster. And just before the show, I was saying I lived in York for a while. And the Minster is this fascinating cathedral. Chetham School of Music in Manchester, organ scholar at Clare College. And then you studied with Gustav and Marie Leonhardt. And then you, let's see, you taught at the Amsterdam Conservatoire, and you're a visiting professor at the Juilliard School. So all through that, you've been learning from people in different ways, the choir, the organ, and then with the Leonhardts. How important is that lineage in classical music today? I think uh, it, it's interesting to note 
how lineages work and, and where there are breaks. I mean, certainly Leonhardt and, and and Marie Marie Leonhardt and and the the Harnacors, they they started something very different in the fifties. They they were they tried to get away from the sort of hardcore what was then well what you would just probably describe as romantic approach, but I don't don't agree with that word. I mean, you know, Baroque performance had become bloated and heavy generally in the 50s not not entirely um pablo casals was still playing it in an incredibly lively manner but he's from an earlier generation he was yeah. born in the 19th century so it's it's it's, it's fascinating to, to chart these lineages and see where things changed what what the the the, the circumstances of change were why they changed um, it's just fascinating just as, as a sort of ongoing um yeah, look at what's what's happening within early music, and it's always changing, and and so it should. Um, we we can always learn, we can always find out more. We can we can you know there are pieces which haven't been performed that we can always um, find new information about performance. So I was talking about recordings. I remember very clearly in the eighties when I was just out of university. I just I'd come down from Cambridge. I was living in London when the early music movement was was punching forward from from Beethoven and Schubert into the Romantic era and doing very rapidly doing Schumann and Brahms and Wagner and Bruckner. And that all took place within the space of about three years. And that was driven very much by the industry. Uh, of course, there was a desire to do that music on old instruments, but it was more driven by the need to be the first to do it. And it didn't matter really how, what the result was uh, and there was a definitely a, at that time there was a, um, a feeling that we we shouldn't listen to old recordings all we should do was read the books and try and learn as much as we can um, not not be too influenced by these horrible old romantic recording recordings where they're sliding around and changing tempo all the time um that's a very a big oversimplification um and then the whole no vibrato please uh, camp um but that was a very hardcore line then, and I think that softened up. I mean, I think particularly the the influence of old recordings of pianists and conductors has become more accepted, and that's something we really can learn an awful lot about performance practice from. Is is the plethora of recordings um, opened up possibilities for reinterpreting what people have done? I mean. Not maybe people aren't following the rules and and doing things a little differently. And well, this is one of the things I I personally find when the more I explore, the more freedom it gives me, because there is no right answer, and uh, there shouldn't be a right answer. The the, the subjective is a, a hugely important part of performance, and it always was. Again, if when when the early music movement started in England. Uh, there was a sort of buzz phrase which was "let the music speak for itself," which is utterly rubbish. It's just it's so contrary to the whole idea of what performance was in until the 20th century, when there was a real break with 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 improvisation being part of a performance. That 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 subjectivity, which was it was absolutely part of any performance of any piece, really until the 20th century. You know, if you you take take an example of a of a Corelli or a Handel violin sonata, for instance. We have ornaments which are purportedly from Corelli himself and from the first publication in 1700. There is an example. Corelli would be horrified if he heard somebody, another violinist playing those ornaments. He would have expected 
any other violinist to provide their own sets of ornaments. So, so what would have been the unique style of a violinist would have been their own particular form of ornamentation? The composition is half the, half the composition, if you like. It's a blueprint. And of course, once you get to Beethoven and later, they, it, there, there's, there's more in the blueprint, blueprint to, to look at. But to say that there's only sort of one correct way of doing things is just it's just it's patently wrong and that's why even now you know if when you look at look at the different recordings there are of beethoven symphonies on on old instruments they're all different and that's a good thing so they should be um you know you can analyze them and say perhaps you know somebody's taking more liberties than other well what are what are liberties you know there, there's so much if, if you start really looking into beethoven performance practice and taking taking seriously what people like Anton Schindler say and Carl Cherney, what, what he talks about uh, how you perform the Beethoven, all the Beethoven piano music. I can, I, I can cite many examples of, of pianists playing the Moonlight Sonata who don't do anything that Cherney says in the, how you perform that, the, the, the first movement of, of that sonata or, or the last movement of that sonata. So it's, it's, um, it's a fascinating area. And I say, the more I read, the more I, I, I delve into these things, it, in a way, the more confidence it gives me to to be subjective and to do what one believes is is right, and I know every, everybody has their own convictions, and everybody everybody's idea will come out sounding slightly different, which is which is great. It's it'd be very boring if there's only one one right way of doing something. My, my first experience with what I didn't know then was historically informed performance practice was. I was around 20 years old, and I had heard some Bach cantatas on the radio in New York, and I said, I want to buy some of these. And I went to the local Sam Goody's record store, and they had several volumes of the set that was was done by Gustav Leonhardt and Nicholas Harnoncourt. I had no idea that this was a contentious set when the recordings first started. It wasn't, wasn't until many years later that I realized that duels had been fought and reputations had been sullied over the debate on, in this case, it was using boy sopranos, but as well, different instruments and different approaches approaches. But what you said in the 1980s is things got really popular because everyone wanted to do it first, and that's because of the boom of the CD, when all of a sudden people were buying so much music. And so from that time, from, say, the 50s with Leonhardt, Harnoncourt, Alfred Deller, until the 80s, it, it, was that the, the turbulent period? And then in the 80s, did it start calming down? It's a, commercially, it certainly started calming down. There was much less coming out. But I think there's, it's, there's still stuff coming out, and it's, and it's still changing. When I mean, you compare John Elliott's recording the, the cantatas to Tom Coleman, for instance, their they're sort of their sets are almost contemporary. They're very different because they both come from very different backgrounds. You know, John Elliott comes from the whole English English tradition. He uses women in the choir um, very much so, uh, which is fine. And, and Tom comes from a very very different side from the dutch organist tradition so and they're both very different they both have very different different ideas and tom uh they're, they're both great musicians uh, so it's nice nice to have the 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 the, the difference and the, and the, the yeah so um, and i think the bach cantatas is, is an interesting area because i think i have four complete sets and there are so many different approaches between the Harnoncourt Leonhardt, between the gardener, Masaki Suzuki, with his approach. And which is the fourth? I don't have the Copeman, but anyway, I know at least three of them very well. I thought I had a fourth. Oh, it's the one on Brilliant Classics, which isn't totally oh, brilliant. Oh, uh, yes, Beyond Peter Lausink. Uh, yeah, it's not I brilliant. Recorded that. None, none of those cantatas were recorded as whole pieces. Yeah. They, they, had, a, they had like... Um, 
uh, two like weeks, shooting a film weeks of sessions of just restatives yeah I mean, yeah, they they were they were taped together um, for commercial purposes. And it's not to say there's, the dance isn't some good singing. There's some very good, very good singers involved. Some of the solo singing yeah. are not bad at all. But, that was, but it's that fascinating was to compare those works in particular that they do create different worlds, and yet they are all complementary. Yeah, I mean, just take just take the, the fact. One one thing that they do have is that they use boy sopranos. Yeah, which and, uh, and since the Leonhardt. Leonard Arnold it hasn't happened. Yeah, um, it's all been been women, and that's you know just take that one aspect of of how you know take a any bar cantata. Do you do it with single single singers? Do you do it with choir? Do you, you know, there are so many questions just from just from the start the start go. Yeah, so that's the thing. Do you do what are your instruments? Do you use gut strings? Do you play with or without vibrato? The whole issue of I forget the term in the Passions whether you have two singers or more for each part yeah well there's i mean there's lots of lots of every i say you know you can do your musicology and you can say you know some of the cantatas for instance they have extra sets of string parts to so some for something like the great famous cantata 51 the trumpet and soprano with yautet got there are extra violin one and violin two parts there are two written parts which implies that there are would they had more players maybe there were more available for that for that performance and it's and it's all about practicality these people were hugely practical musicians so you know if Bach had to write his cantata for the following Sunday and half the boys were sick and he was left with one soprano one tenor uh, a, a recorder a bassoon and a trim phone he would have written written a, a cantata for that combination um, <laughs> it's actually quite funny when you think of it that, that how much he adapted to the forces that he had at hand. But it's also, but I think it's also interesting that we, you put so much uh, importance on these subtle changes, which to him were probably just very pedestrian. Yeah, and, 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 it, and, it, and it shows you that they, they were flexible. You know, and every time Bach made a transcription of something, he changed it. He didn't keep it the same. Um, so that this idea of something being totally fixed is just, it, it was always in flux, depending on all sorts of circumstances. But, you know, it, you, you, you can say that, you no know, boys' voices are different and were different from a woman's voice, if you like. And not only that, but, of course, Bach's boys' voices, we're talking about boys of not the age of 12 or 11, 12, 13. We're talking boys the age of 17, 18, 19, yeah. which was, that was when it was common for a boy's voice to break. And yeah. if you think of the, the massive difference of, of, a, of a boy of, of 11 and a boy of 18, 19, in terms of, in every, every way, music, musically and emotionally, uh, it's a different animal. Uh, and you still have that sort of the sound of the boy, the German boys choir is still very much around. Still, it hasn't really altered much in the last, 800 years or however many how many years they've been going or certainly 600 years um so yeah it, it's a it's a fascinating topic as to how you how far you go to to recreate that or do you, you know what's important for me is you use all this information and you take it to wherever you're taking it and you you try and make the performance as, as lively and valid as you can to the audience that you're playing for so if you're going to do a, a Bach passion in in a very large concert hall, yes, you could do it authentically, for the want of a better word, with maybe 12 singers and 25 people in the orchestra. But it's going to sound a little bit like a 
a drop in the ocean. You know, it, it's it's better to we've we've done passions in in big halls and Barbican Centre, and you just you just want to for the impact of the music. It's just nice to have a little something which is a little bit more solid, and that's just being practical. And and no composer would have objected to that. <laughs> that's just yeah. being being you know smart and being. Uh, and, and I don't think, for the most part, the audiences really care too much, do they? Record critics will pick the nits and go into the details, because, in part because record labels are trying to sell records on something that you do which is unique. In fact, we'll talk about one of yours in a few minutes. But I think most people in an audience, they're going to want to hear the music. They don't care how it's made. Yeah, it's a different. It's a different thing, you know. Making making a CD is a different thing from from a, from a concert performance, and and it should be. Um, it's really important in any any concert to to give the audience something which is alive and, and meaningful. Um, it's, it's important to give them that in a recording as well, but it's a, diff- a different different uh, animal. Yeah. So I do want to talk about your Goldberg Variations recording on Harmonia Mundi some years back. I love that recording, and there's something unique about it, and I. I didn't really pay attention till I read up on it. You use seagull quills to to pluck the strings instead of, I guess, a, a sort of plastic. Yeah, I mean, it's there's again with sort of urban myths about harpsichords. Most harpsichordists and harpsichords use something called delrin, which is a sort of flexible plastic option, uh, rather than. People. The story goes is that using real bird quill is is too much hassle. It's too much trouble. It's actually not true. It's it, you know plastic is in a way just as much trouble. Uh, and what's more, in a concert, if you if you if you've got plastic in as a as a plucking material, if you're in the middle of a concert and it it will just break, it will just go, and then you're left without a, without a note because you know as soon as the plectra yeah. goes, you, you're stuffed. Um, with quill, it will go gradually, so you'll feel it going, and you'll probably be able to do something about it in the interval. <laughs> it's just a different material, and it's it's just a, you know it's the, the difference is as you'd expect. Plastic is a man-made, not particularly uh, um, well. It's not an animal material. Where, where there's something with the there's a flexibility in a in a in a feather quill. In a quill, the, 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 it's the spine of the of the feather that you use to, to put in to pluck. It's not the part that you, that Shakespeare used to write his plays. It's not the tip. It, it is exactly. Yeah. Okay. So it has a, it has a, a flexibility which you can't really get from plastic. Why did they ever switch? Is it just the matter of oh, it's cheaper to produce these? Or I mean, have not you that, ever tried to raise seagulls, Doug? Uh, you know, <laughs> I've laid a hand. I've laid a hand on a harpsichord keyboard like twice, and I always felt I was going to break it because it it has that sensation. But I'm wondering why did they if if quill worked so well? Why did they switch to plastic? I think it was just a just a just as one of those options that people went for in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Plastic was a new material. They thought, I guess, people thought it was. Better, I don't know, because it, it doesn't it doesn't feel as good. I mean, it really doesn't. If you've got any sensitivity, that 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 extra bit of flexibility that you have with with quill just gives you a bit a bit more. I mean, because as I always say, the harpsichord is the most unmusical instrument in the universe. It is the ultimate Monty Python machine that goes ping. That's <laughs> all it does. Yeah. And the thing about yeah. plastic is it goes ping ping. Yeah, it won't go. <laughs> yeah, it, won't, it, won't, it 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 just has 
less flexibility. So uh, certainly for solo literature, um, uh, it, it just gives you that bit of extra control over the attack of a note. Uh, you can. It, you suppose they went to plastic because it was louder? That's also one thing. I mean, even uh-huh. in the 17th and 18th century, they, they used different kinds of quill. I mean, I had my... Huh. I had an Italian uh, instrument um, 20 years ago, which I don't have anymore, but that was uh, that was quilled in vulture. So that was a big, hard feather. So, uh, And that's less flexible, but it gives you a certain amount of power. So you've got different yeah. different materials for different kinds of huh. situations. So if, you, if, you, if, you've got, if you've got a harpsichord in an orchestra, you don't want it necessarily to be soft and subtle. You want it to kick ass a bit. So you can, you can, voice, you can voice quill quite hard. If it's a hard quill, a big, big bird quill, then you can, it can give quite a kick. And in fact, there are even uh, reports and, and, and uh, treatises which say you can use metal. Oh, my goodness. Um, brass, brass quills. And, and so, you know, they just use materials which were appropriate. But if you're playing solo, subtle solo literature on a harpsichord, you don't want something which is going to kick your teeth in at the beginning of every every note. So that's why um, using quill is 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 a it's, well, it's lovely. It's also it's just it's it's just a lovely lovely feeling rather than it, how how quickly can you swap out a set of quills in a harpsichord? Well, you don't you uh, you only ever need to usually change change one or two. If okay. you know, if one or two go, it takes nine. But I mean, if you wanted to go, let's say for instance, you're playing heavy metal harpsichord, you wanted to use the brass. <laughs> Uh, picks, uh, how, you know, if you wanted to swap them all out, how long would that be? Well, what I, my, my harpsichord maker was really smart. I've got two sets of jacks. So I can just take the jacks. I don't even have to do that. I've got, I've got a, a set of jacks oh. which has got sort of more heavy-duty stuff in for louder louder operation. Right. So changing a set of jacks, so the three rows, three registers, so probably take you – Four minutes, four or five minutes. Ah, you can, so you could do it. You could do it during. You a could program. do it in the interval. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you could do. Um, yeah. So it, you know, there, there are ah. practic- practical again practicality, practical right. ways of of doing these things. But it, yeah, it, you know, it's it's uh, it's horses for courses. So for certainly for the, the solo literature, it's very nice to have have the feeling uh, a bit, bit more sensitivity to the to the the noise. Did you use these quills on your other Bach recordings, Partitas French Suites? I think I, be, I believe so. Yeah, because they're, they're the ones that I have in that. That's the same instrument. That, that's my. Um, that's yeah. my. Um, um, my companion for the last oh goodness thirty years now. It's it's thirty years old that, that machine. The 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 sound of those recordings is really interesting because it sound like it sounds like it's mic'd from inside. And the softness of the quills, I, I'm sitting on my, I work at home, I'm sitting on my desk, and I have two speakers on my desk. So often I listen to music in the near field listening thing, where the sound is obviously different from when you're distant. And listening to those recordings, it feels very enveloping. It's a sound that you don't get from other instruments. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a funny, it's a bit like recording piano. It's a, diff- it's a difficult thing to record, but I, but I had a great, a great relationship with the... Uh, the producer and engineer at uh, Harmony Monday, we had a great, great and long, long connection together. Um, yeah. So I think they did, they, they did me proud. They did, they, they got, got a great, great sound in, in, in recording that instrument particularly. Yeah. The Goldberg variation recording also uses Bradley Lehman's tuning system. Now I've known Bradley online for quite some time. And when he was coming up with this, I remember on a discussion group that he was trying to explain it and I don't really get it, but is it the idea that you can play in any key without having those, 
notes that just don't sound right? <laughs> no, in a way, it's the other way around. The, 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 the whole thing about um, tuning systems, there's a lovely little book, book called How Equal Temperament Ruined Music. Um, it, the, 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 what we use today, this, this equal temperament, is it's a communist system. <laughs> and it, it is. It, every, you know, the distance between every, every, yeah. is the same. Yeah. That only actually came in when music demanded it. So literally when Schoenberg came up with a similar communist system for musical composition, the 12 tone system, that's when you absolutely need something which is equalized. Yeah. Even in the 19th century, keyboards were not tuned equally. Uh, I've got a, there's a, a massive book, a Norwegian guy produced, which is like 1800 pages long. Half the book is tuning systems from the 19th century. Wow. Uh, so, that's why people talked, and and they still do talk about key color and how colors. I'm sorry, but that's just that's that's now that is just doesn't happen. Equal doesn't. Yeah, happen. I wa- I long wondered about that. Well, why would a key sound different today? And then when I realized listening to older tuning systems like um, Werkmeister, what's one of the other ones that you can hear that keys do have their own character. Yeah, I mean, that, and the further back towards the beginning of the 17th century you go, the more polarized, the more differentiated. So once you get back to, um, I don't know whether you've come across my Sphalink recording or my Bird recording, but both of those are yes. in quarter comma mean tone. And that's, mean tone, yeah. that's really like, you know, there's a massive difference between C and C sharp. If you play a chord of C sharp major, it's like being poked in the eye with a pointed stick (laughs) and that's the point that's the point of chromaticism that the the distance between every semitone is really different and so that's why uh, certain keys had certain um associations and certain colors that were assigned to them because the the sort of physical way that the, the the they ring and they resonate within the tuning systems gives you a a a different feeling so yeah uncomfortable out for out of tune keys uh, give you a more un- uncomfortable and out of sort feeling, um, and you know it's fascinating to see how composers use those, and they really did. Um, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great topic, um, and it's something I don't know, you know, I, I'm sure you're Jacob Collier fans. Um, are you a Jacob Collier fan? You don't no. know Jacob Collier? No, oh, guys, he's the sort of the next, the next Quincy Jones. He's one of the, one of the great arrangers and 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 performers that's around you should check him out okay he's really he's really into intonation and tuning systems and brilliant brilliant guy he's a young english guy i think he's in his late 20s now <laughs> jacob Collier. check him out um, well. but it's 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 re- it's really important for the for the sound and the feel of the music all the way until you get to the 20th century so it's it's uh so the the system that the sort of holy grail system that people were trying to find for a hundreds of years was Bach's tuning system and uh, which allowed him to play the well-tempered clavier in all the keys exactly and you know uh, where where did we find it Bradley sort of looked at the title page of book one of the well-tempered clavier and there's this sort of looks like a doodle at the, at the top of the of the manuscript above the the title it's not a doodle at all it's information it clearly is information uh, the, the number of loops in the in the in the swirls, it's it's definite. It, there's a plan there. Now, how you interpret that plan, that's has been open to debate. But I think what Bradley come, came up 
it was, it was certainly an absolutely viable option and it's certainly a system and that's that it, it's very recognizably a, the kind of system that was around at the beginning of the, of the 18th century end of the 17th century so um and, and it gives a very interesting flavor to all of the all of the keys we were speaking with Ian Bostridge recently, and I was asking him if he's sung Winterheiser on a fort piano. And you were saying earlier that there were different tuning systems used in the 19th century. Would Schubert have had a tuning system? Yeah. No, in fact, um, a disc which just just came out a um, month ago, not even a month ago, actually, officially it came out on... Schubert uh, April, April, the, April the 10th, I think it was. Uh, did, uh, we did a... My, my wife and I have done a, a disc of Schubert um forehand yeah um uh, which we used a, a system from 1800 okay. which is very differentiated i listened to that last week and i didn't notice anything so now i'll have to listen again and try and pay attention is there is there a, a flavor that's different yeah absolutely um and that's that's quite that's quite a quite a distinct one it's not even a, a gentle one it, there you know when, when you get to g flat major it, it's it's pretty smelly um <laughs> Uh, yeah, so they're, they're absolutely. There were, of course, equal temperament was theorized. It's not that it, it wasn't known about or thought about, even in the 16th century, because if, you, if you've got frets, for instance, like on a guitar or a gamba, viola da gamba, mathematically you can actually produce, if you, if you get the distances right, you calculate the distances, you can create equal temperament. So it was some, certainly something that people knew about and probably even used, but generally... For, for keyboard instruments, that was not done uh, until the, really the late 19th, early 20th century. It's really fascinating to think of all of the variables that you have at, at your disposal. Obviously, you're, you're, you're leaning in certain directions because of your experience, but how do young musicians today come up? Uh, we were talking about lineage earlier, so if you're teaching some musicians, you're going to instill into them your ideas but how do they actually choose what's appropriate? Is is a lot of it personal, or is a lot of it the marketplace as well? Some of it, some of it, a uh, little bit of both. I mean, I think um, if you again historically, if you look at uh, what kind of tunings people have used, they've always been a little bit middle of the road. Uh, one of the one of the tunings is Velotti, which uh, generally early music groups have used for everything in the kitchen sink. Um, particularly for sort of early 18th century, late 17th century music. And that's a late, that's a sort of mid 18th century, early mid late 18th century temperament. Um, and for instance, Handel's organ, his first organ that he had in Halle was tuned in this, this mean tone tuning that I was talking about. It was a very severe tuning. I think generally, certainly organs uh, were probably more old fashioned in the way that they were tuned. So, it's a bit like looking from behind rather than looking from the front. It, it, I think uh, tuning systems generally are uh, people haven't used early enough tunings. Some people have, but not not always. So it's uh, I think that today's generation they've got all sorts of questions. How you know in this this marketplace is a very different world from when I started up in the in the eighties. I and mean, there were many more possibilities of, of of getting work and stuff. So they. So they're, they're they're being very clever. They're using using stuff online a lot a lot of a lot of groups. Um, how do you how do you sell your music in, in these these times? I'm hoping that with this all this situation we're in at the moment, I think I really hope that live live performance comes back with a 
a massive vengeance. I think people are going to want it. I think people need it. Um, recordings have always been fun. I've always enjoyed making recordings. And I think that that was a very important uh, part of the industry, as I say, particularly in the 80s and 70s and 80s. It's become less so, I think, but it still can be very valuable in, in certainly in helping in promoting stuff and doing stuff online. I'm, I'm actually doing a doing a, a live stream video concert on the third of May with my wife. We're going to do a forehand thing. Um, so at the moment, that's a nice way of getting out to people. But I I, I really hope that that people will, when we can, come back into the concert hall and enjoy enjoy that experience of hearing and enjoying music together. So how are you doing in the lockdown? I see you've well, got plenty of music to listen to. I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing you're the kind of guy who has bookshelves that look the same. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, it's, it's just very strange. You know, we have nothing, nothing. As of middle of March, everything yeah. stopped. Yeah. Um, the diary has basically been cleaned out until goodness knows when, maybe September, maybe January, who, who knows? Um but I, we moved house. That that took that took a few weeks. So uh, I've I've unpacked about two hundred and seventy five boxes in the last two weeks. Uh, as it, well, yeah, that's your daily exercise. Everything is out. So I mean, I I, I, I know everything I own now has been, been gone through and, and put out. But um, yeah, there's always something to, to do. I mean, it's nice talking to you guys. It's nice sort of planning to planning for the future and um, and looking. Out. I've got two young young children as well. So that 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 keeps keeps me busy and two. Uh, recently shaved cats who are just as you can see um, shaved yeah, well they, they're very long they're siberian so they were very fluffy and ah. with, just had them had their summer summer shearing do, do you do you actually shave them or is it just because i i'm a cat owner as well and the idea of shaving cats seems a bit strange well uh, we took them to a, a cat happy cat a happy cat person uh, who um just gave them a game you can see one of them there sleeping okay um, so I think it's probably for the summer. It's probably good because it'll, it'll grow again. It'll, I mean, it'll, it'll get thick and thick. Yeah. So no, I mean, just we're just sort of holding the thought down and, and as as everybody else watching the world and seeing seeing what's happening and and uh, and hoping for the the return of some normalcy at some point. But uh, it's going to take a while, obviously. Yeah. Okay, Richard Egger, thank you very much for taking time to talk with us. You're most welcome. It was great talking to you. Thanks. Pleasure. We'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for uh, for kicking in a few bucks every month and help us keep the show going. You can help out as well. A few bucks a month. It's like taking us out for a cup of coffee and a piece of pie. That'd be great. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the next track. Time now for our next track picks. Kirk, what have you got? This week, I am going to listen to a recording of Box Cello Suites by Anna Bielsma. He is a Dutch cellist, and I'm pretty sure he was the first cellist to record these on a period instrument. He's playing on a Baroque cello from 1699, made by, for those who are interested, Matteo Goffrelleri in Venice. This is actually the first recording of these works that I ever bought. This goes back a long time. In fact, my CD set is on a label called Sion, which doesn't exist. This was bought out by Sony. Anna Bielsma is, as I said, Dutch. He performed a lot with the musicians we were talking about earlier, Harnencourt, Leonhardt, etc. He had a, a very long career performing Baroque music and early romantic music. Unfortunately, he died last year. He was 85 years old. I was fortunate to hear him perform these works. I think this is around 1990 in France at a small festival in a small church. And 
you may know these works because the Soul Cello Suites, Yo-Yo Ma, is everywhere these days on social media playing the first prelude. But the tone colors that come out of this instrument are really, really fascinating, much more so than a more recent, more resonant instrument. I, I couldn't tell you if he's playing with gut strings. I'd have to listen to it again to be able to say so. But one thing that's interesting is the image on the cover shows him playing the cello without a peg on the floor. He's holding it between his knees, which is the way you would hold a viola de gamba or a large-sized viola de gamba. It's an extraordinary recording. It is my go-to recording of these works. It's slightly rough-hewn, as sometimes this historically informed performance music can be. It doesn't have the sheen of, of... better sounding strings and better sounding instruments and even better sounding recordings. But there's just something more organic to this specific recording. And and he did record it a second time, I believe on a different instrument for a larger label, and it sounded much more perfect. So this is Box Cello Suites by Anner Balsma. Doug, have you got something? For the longest time, I thought the band The Electric Flag was strictly a psychedelic band. And, of course, the name reinforces that. But I think at some point I did hear a song from one of their albums, and it sounded psychedelic. So for a long time, I just dismissed them as being like one of those San Francisco bands. Turns out, though, later I found out that they were important because Buddy Miles was in the band. And then I found out that that's also where Mike Bloomfield played for a while. So Mike Bloomfield, in case you didn't know, was... uh, (laughs) <laughs> it was was one of the guys that helped make Bob Dylan electric. Came from uh, Chicago. He played guitar in the Paul Butterfield Blues Band and then uh, did a lot of stuff with Al Cooper, did super sessions with Al Cooper and Stephen Stills. Uh, he did this electric flag stuff and, you know, did his own stuff as well. I'm going back to this debut album by the electric flag. It's called A Long Time Coming. It's really good, really interesting. You wouldn't think they'd be able to pull it off, but it's blues and R&B and soul um, with psychedelic stuff kind of stuck in between. Uh, it's a weird sandwich, that's for sure, but it's, it's, it's quite iconic, and it's really a great record to listen to. I mean, there are fabulous people on it, not just, uh, not just Buddy Miles and Mike Bloomfield, but uh, Nick Gravenides is part of the band, Herb Rich, Barry Goldberg, guest appearances by Richie Havens, Cass Elliott. There's just a lot of people involved in this record. I often wondered why they wanted to call themselves the Electric Flag, but I often think that Mike Bloomfield was trying to establish himself as sort of the leader of this American sort of music, and that's why the Electric Flag kind of planted uh, this sound in the in the in the in the sound at the time. There was a lot of crazy music being made in the late '60s, uh, and this I think counts for it. But the blues and R and B and soul stuff really holds up, and the and the Stax Volt horn section, uh, or the Stax Volt sounding horn section anyway, uh, really uh, get, brings a lot of energy to this record. So check it out if you haven't heard it. The Electric Flag, a long time coming, is my next track. This was episode number 180 of The Next Track. Thank you very much for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and we're self-sustaining, so your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.